episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm John Collins, the author and the founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, we spoke last night, and you said that you were really excited about this episode, probably the most excited. But there's one thing that I didn't tell you last night. Uh, From my perspective, this is, for me, one of the topics that is the most embarrassing to me. There is a logic flaw with William Branham's story for this topic that we're about to get into, which I'll describe later in the episode. But I consider myself to be fairly smart man. You know, I'm not going to say that I'm the smartest, but I like to think of myself as logical and thinking clearly. But whenever I suddenly was faced with the logic flaw with this one particular topic, I just, I I came unglued. I I was like, I can't believe that I fell for this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and I, I know what you mean too. This this story is uh, is is a very important story. Th- this is the reason our our message church exists. This story right. that we're talking about today, uh, where I come from, our our pastor actually converted into the message upon hearing this story. Uh, yeah, Raymond Jackson came into the message upon hearing this story that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and so I'm, I am very excited to look at this. I, I think this might be my most uh, favorite episode up to this point. Uh, I guess we'll see when it's done and we go back and watch it, right? <laughs> so far, everyone that we record has been my favorite, so yeah. I, I, I expect this to be no less. This okay. is very interesting. Yeah, so, so today uh, we're going to talk about a very famous event in William Brown's ministry, the 1933 baptism. And this event, it's critical. It's a critical element of faith for all message believers. Uh, this is the point in time which, when which we believe it was revealed that William Branham um, was supernaturally declared to have the Elijah anointing. Right. Um, and it's really the first big supernatural event of his ministry in, in terms of it supposedly had all kinds of witnesses and evidence. And yeah, in, in my church, John, uh, we'll get to this later, in my church, we knew multiple witnesses who were at this baptism at this event. Wow. Uh, and so we'll we'll be able to talk about that as, as we go along. But maybe before we talk about the baptism itself, maybe we can set the table by talking about what was going on in William Branham's ministry uh, around this time and and leading up to the baptism, and also talk about who was sponsoring this tent meeting, which are details no one ever tells us when we're in the message. Right, John? Yes, and some new information that we actually have just as of this week about who was participating in these revivals. Right. Now, according to William Branham's official biography, you know, the, the ones you can get like this. And a man uh, sent from God. Yeah. According to that one, William Branham had met Roy Davis in 1931 and been ordained a minister about six months later. Right. And, of course, we, we've already looked at some pretty strong evidence that William Branham had already been working with Roy Davis since the 1920s, and we highlighted some of that in our last episode. But either way, 
Um, William Branham was definitely working with Roy Davis by this point in his ministry. And he had been doing that in the years leading up to 1933 and become a leader in Roy Davis's Jeffersonville Church. And John, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about what Roy Davis was up to in Louisville and Jeffersonville in these years of time when William Branham was even officially with him um, in his Jeffersonville church as, as assistant pastor and a leader in his church. Yeah, I think that's a good idea because really <clears throat> to truly understand the story, you have to understand what is going on during these years, during this time. And, you know, honestly, like you say, this is fundamental to the message cult philosophy and theology. You have to understand this story because so much is built on top of this story. But before we could get into this story, we had to give some of the background leading up to this story to even begin to explain, you know, the history that went with this. So at this point in time, we're talking about June of 1933. We have Roy Davis, who was the official spokesperson for the Ku Klux Klan. He was, when the Klan was, um, was basically splintered and um, a lot of the leadership was ousted. Davis was ousted with those leaders. He, um, he and William Joseph Simmons, the founder of the 1915 Klan, had um, started a new white supremacy group called the Knights of the Flaming Sword, which also disbanded. And Davis moved, as we talked about in the previous episodes, through Nashville, Tennessee, and into Louisville, Kentucky, as he's building his Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. And there's strong evidence that suggests that William Branham was fundamental in the creation of that sect. When Davis got into Louisville, he had a long string of criminal activity that followed him, this trail that followed him everywhere he went. And Louisville was no exception to this rule. Um, He was... He was identified as having this trail of criminal history in Louisville during the years William Branham was in this area involved in the church in Louisville. Right before uh, last evening, I just went back and did a quick quick look, John, and I was able to identify at least six times that Roy Davis was arrested right. um, while he was in Louisville and Jeffersonville. And in the period <laughs> of the time, he was officially working with William Branham, according to his right. biography. And, and I, I just printed off just a smattering. I mean, this is just six of dozens and dozens of newspaper articles where, where Roy Davis was arrested uh, during the time William Branham was working with him in Louisville and Jeffersonville. This was not something that went on behind the scenes. This, these were no. very public arrests. Right. They made the, some of them even made front page news because here's this minister claiming to be, you know, God's gift to mankind, and, he, and he's arrested for sex crimes, fraud, stealing, the whole right. bit, right? He was running like a fake mission and defrauding people out of right. donations. Um, just thing after thing, he defrauded a widow out of, uh, or, or when a woman died, defrauded the kids out of their inheritance. Just on and on and on it went. All the stuff he did, and 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 kind of the 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 ultimate one for me, John. And we mentioned this in the last one is when Roy Davis was arrested off the platform from his church in Jeffersonville mid-service. While and it was during the worship service, he he was allowed to finish his song, and then the uh, the police carted him off to jail. And the yes. newspaper articles tell us William Branham was his worship leader 
yes. when this happened. In and charge of the, of the praise service. Yep. And all of this is just a few months before the baptism service in 1933. Right. right. So we're leading up to the most fundamental element of what people call the message. It was literally this event that William Branham claimed was God telling the people that he was sending the messenger of the age, if you will. And this whole string of criminal activity leads up to William Branham being involved in probably the biggest religious scandal in this area at that time. I mean, it, I've read th many papers, and I can't find anything even close to as significant of a scandal as this. Right. It, it, it's, a, it's crazy what was going on uh, in, in Roy Davis's ministry and with the men around him. Because uh, Roy Davis wasn't the only one in these newspaper articles getting in trouble with the stuff going on. And I, I have a question. Do you think, John, it is possible that—is it possible that William Branham— did not know that this stuff was going on. That that was a very early question for me when I started to realize this evidence was true. Is there is there any way that William Branham could not have known what he was connected to? Um, and 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 for me, I'll let you answer this. For me, this newspaper article where where Roy Davis was arrested off the platform in front of him, you know, tells me that there's just no way he could not have known. Right. I actually had the same question. And initially, I thought maybe he didn't know because he was from Jeffersonville, in Jeffersonville. He talked about living on the outskirts of Jeffersonville. And the Jeffersonville newspapers, until it just exploded in uh, whatever, I can't remember what year exactly that was. He was arrested off the platform. I thought maybe he didn't know leading up to the arrest. However... When he was, when Roy Davis was arrested off the platform in Jeffersonville, there's no possible way Branham could not have known. But when we started piecing the timeline together, even by William Branham's own words, he, in some sermons, gives how many years prior to the revival at hand that he's working with Davis, and it places William Branham in Louisville with Roy Davis during the heat of this scandal. So not only would he not have known, he would have had to have been involved with defending Roy Davis against the scandal because he's part of the ministry. Mm -hmm. For a minister in this position, you only have one of two choices. Either you defend the person who is being accused and criminally prosecuted, or you leave. There's only two options. So right. he had to have known. And, and when you read the newspaper articles... There, there's even newspaper articles about the trials where in the hearings and stuff where, where Davis was, you know, before the judges. And in the, the articles would talk about a, a significant sized group of people from Roy Davis's church where William Brandon was assistant pastor being at the trials and, and all speaking in defense of Roy Davis and, um, you know, just just doing things in, in his uh, in his defense uh, at these trials. And so it. it it just seems impossible that William Branham was not there in that number of people, knowing that the prominent position he held in the congregation at the time, even. Um, and that, that kind of gives me another question, John. And this is one that still, I, I believe I know the answer, but I'll ask it to you. Do you think 
that William Branham could have personally been involved in any of this criminal stuff, you know, any of the defrauding, any of the financial crimes, any of this stuff that was going on with Roy Davis at this time. I mean, he was arrested six times at least just in these this three-year space of time that, that William Branham was, was working so closely with him. No, the sex scandals I have to separate because I have no evidence that William Branham was sleeping with underage women. But there are also some racketeering charges. I don't know if you've caught that in the newspapers, but I did. Roy E. Davis was accused and I think even indicted for um, for what was considered to be religious racketeering. He had doctrinal positions that were designed such that they were bringing in revenue. William Branham, as a leader in this organization, this Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect, would have had the same doctrines and would have had the same potential, not potential, but literally the same involvement in bringing in this revenue. So he was at minimum involved with the racketeering scandal. The other scandals, the fraud, etc., he was involved basically by defending, but we don't know what level involved in participating. The church fund, for example, they had a scandal where they were basically presenting themselves improperly as though they were one of the more popular churches in Louisville, collecting money for the Bethel fund, I think is what they called it. William Branham was with Davis at this time. He was a part of the church. He was a leader. He was involved with the praise and worship service. If they were collecting money during the service, which it appears they were, William Branham was also involved with that fraud of uh, you know defrauding the Bethel mission. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where William Branham did not have some level of involvement uh, in this criminal activity. Uh, especially when you look at the nature of the financial crimes and the way Roy Davis had it organized through his church there in Jeffersonville where William Branham held a prominent position. So it's very likely that, that William Branham, at the very least, was complicit in what was going on, uh, if not an active participant in it. And as as you think about this, you know Roy Davis has been arrested all of these times. The laws, you know, narrowing down on him in in this area, <clears throat> which is a pattern that's repeated everywhere Roy Davis has went. Right. He wears out his welcome after a short, you know, three, four, five years. He's got to abandon that town and move on. And so that's what's starting to happen here. And we know by 1934, Roy Davis beats it out of this area, right, to go find the next town for, to be his chief victims. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and, like burning the towns as you yeah. leave through, pass through them, right? <laughs> and and so like like everywhere else, though, of course, he's no doubt wants to leave behind a, a church, a footprint, something he can, you know, hold on to. Uh, and so he's doing something in this area, obviously, before he leaves in order to have something set up after he's gone. Um, enter, enter the 1933 tent meetings of William Branham. Right. And and how and so obviously, you know, you think back to the beginning of William Branham's ministry, it only makes sense. Someone had to be sponsoring this tent meeting, right? Because mm-hmm. where do you get the money for a big tent that can suit seat a lot of people and, and do this kind of a revival thing? That's not a cheap thing to do. 
No. So where where did all the money come from for this? Who was sponsoring this? Uh, and that, that kind of leads us into maybe the next part of our discussion. Uh, and that is that William Branham's 1933 tent meetings that started his ministry in, in his famous way was sponsored by Roy Davis uh, and his white supremacist people. That is who yes. was sponsoring the 1933 tent meetings. And keep in mind, Roy Davis was not just the head of a Jeff Jeffersonville church. He was a church planter. He was building a church. He was growing a denomination that he wanted to basically compete with the other Pentecostal denominations, the other Baptist denominations, and pull people out of those religions into his own. It was it was like this big sponge that was absorbing members of other churches, right. and he's he's literally setting up William Branham to be a leader in his sect. Exactly, exactly. And I have we know Roy Davis was the one sponsoring his meetings. I'm just going to you know share a couple of the newspaper clips there. But we have multiple articles where Roy Davis is in the newspaper advertising the tent meetings that that William Branham are going to end up headlining in the month of June. Um, he, he's running advertisements uh, in the month of May for it, uh, talking about that he's got a tent and there's going to be a revival and further announcements to come. And so that's the lead up. We know Roy Davis was sponsoring the tent meetings um, in 1933. Um, and then maybe we could talk just a little bit about that site where the tent meeting was held, uh, John. Because the, the tent meeting was held at 8th and Pratt Street, according to the newspaper articles. The 33 meetings was held at 8th and Pratt Street. And um, if you look on a map, uh, so the tabernacle is at 8th and Penn Street. Uh, and the site of these 1933 tent meetings at 8th and Pratt, this would be like the parking lot of the Branham Tabernacle today. Uh, it, it was not where the tabernacle building is, but it would be the parking lot of it. And that site had actually been... Uh, the location of other tent meetings in just recent prior months to this that had also been connected to ministers associated with Roy Davis and his his white supremacy groups. Right, John? Yes. It, and, you know, there's some newspaper articles that when I first discovered the 8th and Pratt tent meeting, because it's on the same lot. I mean, literally, if you look at the Branham Tabernacle today, you see the big red brick building. The doors are facing Penn Street. Then behind this is a parking lot, and the parking lot is on the Pratt Street side. So this entire city block goes from Pratt Street to Penn Street, where it borders 8th Street. And when I first saw the Pratt Street, address. I just kind of discounted it because, you know, it could have been that Pratt Street was the address and that the building was sitting here because I only found, you know, the tent meeting. And, you know, if you had the tabernacle and the tent was behind it, this would make sense. However, we recently found one article that's that also called this tent thing his tabernacle. Right. The deed to the church was 1936. William Branham says that he dedicated his church in 1933, and we have articles all the way up to 1934 where they were holding tent meetings on Pratt Street. And the final question that I had to answer was, did Penn Street even exist? Because if Penn Street didn't exist, then Pratt Street could have been the address. 
But we also found articles stating that Penn Street did exist at that time. So the church building that sits today, the doors are on Penn Street. If the newspapers reported the Branham Tabernacle, they would have reported it at Penn Street, not on Pratt. So this is significant when you think about the later versions of the, the life story where he's right. burying, burying these alleged seven prophecies in a tabernacle on Penn Street. This tabernacle did not exist in 1933. Right. And in our next episode, John, I know we're going to try to deep dive into the when the tabernacle got started and built and all that. But certainly, uh, like you said, the there was a tent According to the newspapers, he had a tent in 33 at 8th and Pratt, so at the parking lot and of the current Branham Tabernacle. And, you know, it kind of makes sense when you think about it because in the Bible, the tabernacle is a tent. Yeah. And so when he called it the Branham Tabernacle, it would almost make sense that it was initially a tent because that right. that is what a taber- biblical tabernacle is. And so it seems like this tent um, that they put up there um, – was was what William Branham called the start of the Branham Tabernacle, which we'll talk about more in, in the next episode. So, right. but this this tent, uh, we just want to point out, it is it's on the same property, the parking lot where the Tabernacle is in 1933 was where they put it there, and it's the same site and likely even the same tent that other white supremacist preachers connected to Roy Davis has been preaching at in just the months prior <laughs> to right. to this June uh this June revival there's there's newspaper articles for that as well connecting them to Roy Davis and, and what they had done and, and I think the man was it a uh, Reverend Earls John uh, correct me if I got that name wrong yeah so this I actually just found this this week and only by accident because um I was looking through newspaper articles I went down to the um I went down to the Louisville Public Library. They have all of the Louisville archived newspapers, and I was digging through it. And um, we'll we'll get into the results of that digging through those articles later. But um, I noticed something odd. There was an evangelist, Reverend Robert Earls, and he was also immediately prior to William Branham's series of revivals. He had been holding revivals leading up to William Branham's revivals. Right. His revivals had been in April and May. William Branham is in June. Exactly. So this was a—you have to remember, back then, revivals were very popular, and they weren't just a Saturday and a Saturday-Sunday weekend event. They went on sometimes for weeks, sometimes months they went on. So we have Roy Davis announcing a big evangelist that's coming— we have a Reverend Robert Earls who is holding the beginning of these revivals. And I just noticed that there are some strange coincidences with Reverend Robert Earls. Mm-hmm. He was a United Brethren minister. When Roy E. Davis was in the Chattanooga um, location for his building of the Pentecostal Baptist Church, and when he was leading the the Knights of the Flaming Sword White Supremacist Organization. And when he was, yeah, basically he was the royal ambassador for the Knights of the Flaming Sword. Well, who's in town in Chattanooga but the Reverend Robert Earls, and he's described as evangelist at large. In other words, he has no set location, and he just chose to camp out in Chattanooga with Roy Davis. When Davis left Chattanooga 
and went to Nashville. Nashville. Who shows up in Nashville? Yeah, same guy. The, <laughs> the Reverend Robert yeah. Earls. And in, in Nashville, right, uh, Roy Davis is utilizing the United Brethren Church to hold his meetings even, right, John? Even, even so much that there was outrage in Nashville by other United Methodist ministers because Davis is advertising his meetings as at the, we're having revivals at the United, um, the Brethren. United Brethren Church. And the other Brethren minister in Nashville were like, this guy's not a Brethren minister. But Davis is utilizing that. So Davis then goes to Louisville, get at, flees from the law to Jeffersonville. Who shows up in Jeffersonville? The Reverend Robert Earls. Right. There, there's, they're clearly working together. And the same thing, we can find kind of advertisements related to that meeting connected to Roy Davis as well here in the Jeffersonville newspaper article. So these yeah. people are, are working together. And this man is having his tent meetings in the same spot and almost certainly the same tent uh, just a few weeks, a space maybe a two weeks from William Branham's meetings. Yeah. Also, there's a strange coincidence. Robert Earls, I, I did a bit of research on him just to get some background. And I'll, on the video version of this podcast, I'll show the... Um, show the newspaper article, but Reverend Robert Earls in Nashville in 1934, which is right after this meeting, this set of revivals with William Branham, he describes himself as an evangelist. And I'll just read the entire quote. For 27 years, he has held the flaming sword of the Lord high. So <laughs> here's Robert Earls, who's been in Chattanooga when Roy Davis was starting the Knights of the Flaming Sword and he's advertising himself as a person who has held the sword the flaming sword of the Lord high I've heard ministers say I'm I'm carrying the sword of the Lord and they're talking about the Bible right you don't usually find a minister who says I'm yeah. holding the flaming sword of the Lord yeah that that's that's a kind of a dead ringer giveaway that he dead was giveaway. part of Roy Davis's flaming sword white supremacist group, right? It's, yes. like a co it's like a code word. Exactly. He's appealing to members of that who are sympathetic. Hey, everybody, come join the flaming sword <laughs> revival. It's right over here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so this is, so now we're, we're within a space of a couple weeks of William Branham's revival meeting, right? Uh, there's just been a white supremacist revival meetings with connected to Roy Davis at the exact same spot, at the exact same place. And now Roy Davis, according to the newspapers, is sponsoring a, another revival meeting at the same spot, the same tent. Um, and uh, lo and behold, it turns out to be William Branham's 1933 tent meeting. And we, we, we have that, you know, according to all of his official biographies, we have newspaper accounts that confirm it. And I want to maybe start by reading a quote of what William Branham says about this tent meeting, uh, and then maybe we can kind of talk about what did happen there. But he says, uh, this is from 1955, January 17th. He said, I was baptizing down on the river. My first converts, no, pause, my first converts, that's important. Yeah. My first converts at the Ohio River and the 17th person, again, he's very consistent every time he tells this person, the 17th person 
and the seventeenth person I was baptizing, as I started to baptize him, I said, Father, as I baptize him with the water, you baptize him with the Holy Spirit. And I'll just pause there. Notice that isn't the message baptismal formula. <laughs> he said, I started to, to put him under the water. And just then a whirl came from the heavens above, and here come that light shining down. Hundreds and hundreds of people on the bank, right at two o'clock in the afternoon in June. And it hung right over where I was. A voice spoke from there and said, As John the Baptist was sent for the forerunner of the first coming of Christ, you've got to have a message that will bring forth the forerunning of the second coming of Christ. And it like scared me to death. <laughs> and here is where my face starts to turn red. <laughs> yes. Okay. So this is... This is fundamental to our belief belief in the message uh yeah this this light this angel this pillar fire came down the voice said from heaven on the banks of the river with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that william branham had been sent with the message to yes. forerun the second coming of christ just like john the baptist right and so this for us sets everything in motion and so like I said, John, I know people who were there. We have newspaper articles. I have stories to share. But So that's a pretty dramatic story, though, John. I mean, if that happened, that's that'd be pretty wonderful, oh gosh, wouldn't it? Man. I mean, that would be, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm, you can probably see it in the video. The people are watching the video. My face is turning red because this is embarrassing. I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to rant. <laughs> so... I'll, I'll let you take your rant before we get to the newspaper articles. <laughs> I was not a quiet message believer. I believed it hook, line, and sinker. I believed this. I taught, you know, I, I wasn't like a teacher in a church, but when I would encounter people at work or friends, if I was at a ball game, if I was at playing basketball, I was telling people about William Branham. You know, why yeah. would I not? The world is ending. I want to save their lives. I was actually concerned for the souls of the people around me. And everyone, I don't care who they are, I don't care what they've done, I don't care what kind of person they are, I want to save them, right? That's what Jesus would want to do. And I'm a logical person. I've told this story. I've told people, did you know that there was a man in Jeffersonville, Indiana, who was baptizing people, and a light shone from the heavens, and a voice spoke through the clouds and announced his arrival on earth? And their first question is always, Really? You mean this happened and we don't know about it? <laughs> and there's it's a huge logic problem, right? If this actually happened and there were that many witnesses, in some cases he says there's hundreds of witnesses, yeah, including one, newspaper reporters. Yeah, one place he says over 10,000 people were there. Absolutely. Picture this, 10,000 people. First off, if there were 10,000 people gathered at the river, that would have made national news, just the fact that there were 10,000 people yeah, here. Because right? that was about the entire population of Jeffersonville at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more. Yeah. So 10,000 witnesses and this voice of God booming from the heavens, it would make every newspaper, they would actually stop the print. This spot is literally right across the river from downtown Louisville, Kentucky. John, I mean, this yes. is this is the center <laughs> of the biggest urban thing within hundreds of miles of here. Right, this this is where it's at is a hugely visible place. 
10,000 would be a small number of people. They would have sent reporters from every city in every state to go learn more about this God voice that spoke to the heavens. I mean, picture today, CNN, you've got all these reporters. I'm live on the scene. I'm here where a voice of God just spoke through the heavens. So at minimum, it's going to be bigger than one little tiny section of the newspaper in Jeffersonville because right. Jeffersonville just had God visit them. Whenever searching for vindication.com, when the administrators of that website were looking for articles of William Branham in the Jeffersonville library, they almost missed the article. I, I actually spoke with them and they said we were scanning through and we almost missed it because it's just this little tiny section doesn't mention anything about God speaking or lights. It, what does it say, Charles? Right. Well, and maybe before I read it, just just for our readers to know, William Branham told us that the newspapers packed this article from all over the country and it went into Canada. He told us even the names of the newspapers that, that yes. it was in. Uh, he said he even read us the headline of the newspaper, Mystic Light uh, Appears Over Evangelist at the River. Like he told us all of this stuff. Yes. That it was in the newspapers, you know, and, and, and the whole thing. But the thing is, John, it's not in the, any of the newspapers that he no. named and said it was in, which we have we've went and looked at. And we even, you even verified some again this week, and I, I looked at the copies as well. Yeah. It's not in any of the newspapers that he actually said it was in, um, but it is the only newspaper it is in is in the Jeffersonville Evening News, so the Jeffersonville local newspaper, mm -hmm. um, and here is a copy of uh, just a part of it. You might be able to show the whole newspaper article, but this is it, and, and, and this right here is it. This is yeah. the only newspaper article about these baptisms right here, and I have a a blowed up copy of it, John. <clears throat> and this is from June the 2nd, 1933. And so first I just want to focus on that date. So he yeah. said he was baptizing his first converts and it was in June. Yes. This is June the 2nd. And so this is either reporting yesterday's news, June the 1st, or maybe something that's happened earlier in this day, June the 2nd. So this has to be his first converts right here. Yeah. For our audio listeners, the title of this, remember, William Branham said his 17th convert. Baptizing <laughs> the 17th person when the light came down. The title of this article is 14 Converted. So there were only 14 conversions reported, not even 17. Right. And so... so Apparently, you know, there was three invisible converts that got <laughs> baptized, and then after that, th this happened. I don't know, right? Yeah. Like it, boy. It it it. When you read this, right, and this is all you got after what William Branham told us. You know, we are expecting a headline: "Mystic Light Appears Over Baptist," and you were supposed to read all about yeah. it. And and this is what we see: fourteen converts and literally four-line article. So I'm going to briefly continue my rant, and then I'm going to stop my rant. And you can see my, my face is fully blushed because I'm embarrassed that I believe this stuff. In the Louisville Public Library, when you go downtown, they have this really big section of archives. And I'm talking rows and rows of filing cabinets. Each filing cabinet has a drawer filled with 
thousands upon thousands of newspaper articles from every newspaper that has existed in Louisville through time. William Branham gave us the name of the first newspaper that he said printed it. He said it was in the Louisville Herald. At the time that William Branham said it was in the Louisville Herald, that paper was bankrupt and did not exist. So his audience actually could not go and get these newspaper articles. As of today, we're in the year 2022. As of today, all of those newspaper articles that did exist have been captured, put onto microfiche, and you can just go read through all of the microfiche. Well, we know his exact date of the revival. He told us it was June the 16th. However, according to the timeline that is now documented and established, it was June 2nd when he had his first conversions. Well, I just went to the Louisville Public Library and I started digging through. I found the Louisville Herald articles and not just for June, but I went through the entire month of June and the month of May, and I'm holding it up here, but I will, uh, for the video, I'm going to make it, you know, much clearer, much better. I've got the headlines for every, um, you know, for every one of the dates that could potentially be the one that was his revival. And I went through every single one of them. It would, it would take rolls and rolls of film for me to publish every single page, but you can go to the library yourself and you can pull these and look at them for free. They will even let you print these pages out of the Louisville Public Library for free. Not a single page from not a single issue from not a single May, May through June month has even a single mention of William Branham's tiny little revival. I've got, I'll share some of the front you know, front page headlines, but there's also in these newspapers, I'm going to hold this one up and I'll make it better for the video, but it says the week's news. Not only did this newspaper print the the big headlines for the day or for the, you know, for the week, they also in each one of the episodes they would, or each one of the issues, they would um, publish the highlights of the week's news. And they would go through and tell you, these are the stories that you may have missed in the other issues of this paper. Not a single one of the this week's news contains a single mention of William Branham or his revivals. However, there are several other crazy interesting stories and revivals that I've got out of these. They were interested in the New Albany, Jeffersonville, Louisville, surrounding areas, um, religious communities. They published revivals for other ministers, not William Branham. And they had some crazy fascinating stories, such as two ministers went rogue and they started preaching that it was God's divine plan to join a nudist colony. I mean, they had some crazy interesting stories, but not a single mention of William Branham. And I'm going to ask again as I close my rant, if a voice boomed from the heavens in front of 10,000 people and said, this is the guy, go listen to him, don't you think that the newspaper would have at least a mention of his name? <laughs> it's incredible, John. It's incredible. Now, I, I mentioned before that 
at Faith Assembly, where, where I was the assistant pastor, the second oldest continuously operated message church in the world, and uh, perhaps the closest, perhaps other than the Branham Tabernacle itself, to the actual site of these events, we knew multiple eyewitnesses who were there at those meetings that day, John. And so I, I want to talk just a little bit about them and, and uh, the their eyewitnesses' accounts, which, which were handed down to us and, and known to the people at our church. And the three eyewitnesses are Fanny Wilson. She's a resident of Jeffersonville. She died about 1978. Uh, Doc Branham, or Edgar Branham, William Branham's brother, who uh, was a periodic uh, attendee at Faith Assembly Church up until he passed away. Uh, he and his family. And then the last one, Graham Snelling, who was assistant pastor of the Branham Tabernacle in the 1950s, uh, who was in Roy Davis's church with William Branham, and who was also present at these uh, 1933 baptisms. So those are three people that are known to us who were at that baptism. And, and I'll say this, they are the only people who were known to us who were at that baptism, who were still in the message uh, by the time you get into William Branham's, you know, the, the 1950s, 1960s. Every other person who might have been at them was no longer in the message by that point. So these are the only three people that we know of that were at these 1933 revival meetings and continued on into the message uh, past the 1950s. Graham Snelling actually left in the mid-50s. So yeah. <laughs> you could say only two of them made it into the 60s. <laughs> Of all of the, and two of those three had strong ties to William Branham and had mm -hmm. basically a stake in the interest in this thing. Exactly, and so I, I just want to talk about about them. Um, and I'm not going to go through all the details of each of their stories, but um, the summary of it all is is that nobody at the river saw a light that day. Nobody, not one of them, and none of them saw or heard, rather, rather, none of them heard a voice speak at the river. None of them. None of the three witnesses that we know were there that day heard a voice or saw a light descend from heaven. Um, and here's the thing. Fanny Wilson is actually referenced by William Branham on tape at one point as a witness to those things, right? Like right. he calls her out from uh, from the platform, and you're a witness to this, weren't you, Fanny Wilson? Fanny Wilson never heard a voice. <laughs> Fanny Wilson never saw a light, right? And, and yeah. we know that. She, she, she told that to people, that she never heard a voice or saw a light. Yeah. But the only thing that they say happened that day was there was some kind of a loud, explosive noise. And when it happened, the people all kind of jumped or screamed or covered their heads. There's some kind of a really loud bang that happened. We can guess all about that, right? <laughs> well, there's two things I want to mention here. Um, number one, the loud bang. That could be anything. Could be. I live in Jeffersonville. You know, I'm not far from the church. I'm only just a few miles from the church. And every so often, I, I conduct my business from here. I'll be talking to business executives in other states from here through video conference. And every once in a while, there'll be this low in my office because in Jeffersonville uh, actually closer towards the church there is a big quarry where they blast with dynamite right 
it shakes my house. It shakes my walls, my windows. When we moved in this house, they did not tell us that there were, there were going to be explosions. So we moved in with no clue that this is happening. And the first time that it happened, I thought the city was under attack, man. Right. And it's, it's right down on the river because yeah. they can load all the gravel and stuff right onto the barges there <laughs> and easily ship it you know, up and down the river. Yeah. But the, the second point, you know, this story became fundamental to the message that God spoke through the heavens and the way he describes it is not an explosion. It's an audible voice. Right. And in fact, he it's so strongly tied to his Elijah version of the stage persona that the voice had words talking about his being Elijah. Right. But. If you look at the timeline and look at the original versions of the story, Charles, the voice did not exist in the earlier versions. I know, I know, and and, and I don't know, I, I don't know if in your part of the message that it was this way, but in in the sect that I came from, we actually openly admitted William Branham is the only person who saw the light or heard the voice, and wow. and it was because we had witnesses, you know. To these things in our in that had been connected to our sex, so it was publicly we publicly believed there was a light and there was a voice, but we would always say, "But William Branham is the only one who heard or saw it, right?" And yeah. if if you listen to like Perry Green sermons, he found the same thing. Like he admits the same thing. William Branham's the only person who was a witness to this. Um, and if you listen to William Branham's telling of these stories, right, he actually says that the people who were at the baptism confronted him telling him he imagined the whole thing like you can actually go back his stories tell that and <laughs> and i want to i want to throw in the story of graham snelling too yeah uh, because that's a really uh, a notable takeaway before we jump to yeah the, the sh when the voice he started talking about the voice because it's actually connected to this william branham never started talking about a voice at the river the first time he mentioned a voice at the river was 1952 yes in every single telling of that story, whether you go to a man sent from God, um, whether you go to the earlier references on tape, whether you go to the references where he talked about it in Voice of Healing magazine, every time he talked about this event before 1952, he never mentioned a voice speaking from heaven. It was just a light descending. Right. But in 1952 is when he started to add in uh, a voice spoke to him and said, you're going to forerun with the message. Uh, well, 1952, so Graham Snelling was the assistant pastor of the tabernacle at that time, and Graham Snelling uh, confronted William Branham over exaggerating the baptism story, <laughs> Yes. okay, in the, in, in the 50s, and you can find other, there's other witnesses that'll, you know, can confirm I'm telling you the truth. I got this from six different people, right, so I... I know this is the absolute truth, and I think, John, you've even been in contact with some of Graham Snelling's family in, in the recent past as well. So Graham Snelling confronted William Branham over exaggerating this story while he was still assistant pastor of the Branham Tabernacle, okay? So he knew it wasn't true. He was confronting William Branham over it, and within just a very short space of time, William Branham has a vision, and Graham Snelling has been committing adultery in his vision. And Graham Snelling is ran out of the Branham Tabernacle, right, just after <laughs> right. this happens, right? That's that's how Graham Snelling's term as assistant pastor at the Branham Tabernacle ended, you know, in case our listeners are wondering. He confronted William Branham over making this story up, 
of exaggerating the baptism story, and William Branham then has a vision that he's committing adultery and has to be, you know, ran out of the tabernacle. <laughs> it, it's incredible, John. So I have two mini rants that yeah, I'm going and, to do. And let me. And Graham Snelling was there when it happened, right? Yeah. Okay. Graham so Snelling ahead. was there. So I have two mini rants. Number one, say that you lived in, I don't know, South Carolina, and the end of the world is coming, and God wants to prepare every Christian on the globe, not just in the United States, for the arrival of Jesus Christ and to announce his coming. And a voice speaks from the heavens and says, this is the guy, go listen to this guy. Yet in this crowd of 10,000 people, only William Branham could hear the voice, the voice that is being announced by God. It doesn't make sense. There's also a logical flaw here. If God is speaking to prepare a church, to prepare Christians, to listen to this man, God's not going to secretly talk to just this only just this man. He's going to tell everyone. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, I have spoken with Grand Snelling's son right before he died. And picture this. You have a large number of people who, you know, would have been here, would have heard literally the voice of God if this thing happened. You could not for any thing in the world change their mind to decide that this wasn't the man because the God just spoke through the heavens. I know. Like, the, why didn't all these 10,000 people stay in the message for the rest of their life? It don't make any sense. 10,000. I mean, this would be 10,000 people. The little tiny building in Jeffersonville could not hold yeah. the number of people that would have been converted had a voice right. actually spoke from the heavens. How can it be that only three of these 10,000 people was still in the message 20 years later? It don't make no sense, John. Not only that, Grand, according to Grand Snelling's son, there were many, many reasons why they decided to break ties with William Branham. You know some of these reasons, which we'll get into later. The one that was the straw that broke their camel's back, according to Graham Snelling's son, William Branham had a church filled with very poor people, especially after the 1937 flood. Everybody had lost everything. Houses decimated. These people were destitute. William Branham would take their tithes and offerings, even though he claimed he did not take a single offering, and he would fund his expensive hunting trips even during those early years when his church were literally starving. There were children who had no food to eat. And William Branham would take the parents' money and go on a vacation, on a hunting trip, while there were children in his church starving. And when he first said this, I didn't believe it, but I started going back to the newspapers, and sure enough, there are articles in the early years talking about his hunting trophies. Mm -hmm. So Graham Snelling and his son were telling the truth, plus we have photographs of all these hunting trips. Yeah. But here's the point I'm driving up to. A voice from heaven spoke and announced the, the coming of the prophet or, you know, this messenger for the age, Graham Snelling, who was there and had the voice spoke, would have heard the voice, hopefully, unless we have a God who is, is some narcissistic God that just going to tell one person and then slaughter the rest of the 10,000 people. Graham Snelling would have heard the voice and you could not change his mind for anything. 
William Branham could have done whatever it was that he wanted to do, and Graham Snelling would have followed him till the day he died. But no, he left the message. He left William Branham and said, that guy basically is a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, in our part of the message, because we, we openly admitted he was the only one who saw and heard it, we had some mental gymnastics we did to explain all that john we we said it was oh it was kind of like the apostle paul on the damascus road and uh the other men you know in that one but everyone heard the voice on the damascus road not everyone saw it but everyone heard the voice uh or then they would go back to the, an account by jesus where god spoke from heaven uh this is uh i, I can't remember the exact quote but uh God more or less speaks from heaven, uh, I have and I'll do it again, is more or less the yeah. paraphrase of what God says. And some people, instead of hearing the word, said, well, we heard thunder. Okay, And so we would they take that verse, uh, well, it's like that. Uh, God spoke, uh, William Branham's the only one who heard it, and other people said it was like thunder. But even that day, with Jesus, other people heard, besides Jesus, what God spoke from heaven, that's how it got wrote down in the Bible, right? <laughs> well, if, if God is speaking to his people, he's going to make his voice heard. Exactly. He's not going to be silent. Nobody else, but nobody else heard God speak from heaven this day, right? And so it, it, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre story that, that, I mean, I think we can conclude that it's just a made-up story at the end of the day. And so I think some key takeaways, John, um, no one... No one, no one saw a light or heard a voice of the river that day except supposedly William Branham. None of the witnesses that we knew that were there saw it or heard it. None of the newspapers that William Branham told us reported it, actually reported it. None of it. None of it that he said is there. And like I said, we looked at this. You looked at you and I have looked at specifically the newspapers William Branham cited. You just held up the Louisville Herald. Yeah. That's the one William Branham said it was in. It is not there. And the other thing, John, which we talked a little about, is before 1952, William Branham never even mentioned this voice at the river speaking. It's only 1952 when he started to make up this story or add that element to the story 1952 yeah. it's left out of of even like this biography a man sent from god and i just want to read just read what it actually says in here that way our people know that we're our listeners know we're not just making it up but it says here um that after his conversion and called to ministry there began a happy period of his life when god's blessings rested on the young man and everything seemed to go just right he began a tent meeting in his own hometown in Jeffersonville, and for a young preacher of 24 years of age just entering the ministry, the campaign was remarkably successful. It was estimated that as many as 3,000 attended a single service and large numbers were converted. At the baptismal service which followed the revival, some 130 persons were baptized in water. It was at this time a heavenly light appeared above him as he was to baptize the 17th person. <laughs> this was witnessed by the vast congregation that stood on the banks of the Ohio River. And that, that's the end of the account. But notice, there's no voice. How many uh, conversions did he have again? <laughs> 130, he was baptized in number 17, right? Yeah, and, and he had 14 conversions. <laughs> 14 con- So, but notice there, there's no, there's no mention of a light. This is from 1950. This is from None. still before he had added the story about the... Uh, the voice talking. 
I just want to pause and say to people who are still in this message cult, if you're on the fence and you're questioning, you know, don't take our word for it. I went to a lot of work. I went into these libraries. I dug through the microfish. But today, you don't have to do that. William Branham said that newspapers printed this all the way up into Canada. In other words, he is saying literally the Associated Press picked up the story, yeah. and it's a national story yeah. now. It should be in all the Associated Press accounts nationwide. Get a free, you get 30 days free. Go to newspaperarchive.com or go to newspapers.com. Get 30 days free. Do a search for William Branham and see, you know, you, we have the exact date. It was June the 2nd when all of this happened. We have the day. Go look through every newspaper in the world for, for this date. For June 2, 1933, you will find not one single article, not one None. of William Branham even None. being mentioned in these papers. None. Coming back to this voice thing, this last point I try and make before we close out, John, is that when William Branham in 1950, like when this book came out, he was still in his Moses persona primarily. Yes. Like if you read this book, it's all about comparing him actually to Moses. And As Moses was given two signs. Right, and as you go through here, it, it gives just comparison after comparison. That's even what the pillar of fire was, was part of his Moses persona, because, you know, the pillar of fire was with Moses through the wilderness. Yeah. And so William Branham did not start talking about the voice at the river until he started to introduce and bring to the forefront his new Elijah persona, which started in about 1952, right? Yeah. And as it's when he decides that he's going to start presenting himself as an Elijah figure, that is when he goes back and he adds the voice saying, as John the Baptist was sent, so you're sent with a message to forerun the second coming of Christ. It was at that point when he started uh, presenting himself as Elijah that he went back and added that detail to this story. That's why every story where he told this before 1952, so we're talking the space of nearly 20 years from this baptism. Right. 20 years later, he adds in this detail that there was a voice at the river, right? Which also coincides with Graham Snelling confronting him for exaggerating the story. So just want to make that very last key detail, John, in there to real clear to our audiences. And I think for me... I think any reasonable person that would look at these facts would have to admit there's absolutely no evidence that what William Branham told us happened at that river that day actually happened. And in fact, there is overwhelming evidence that he made up that story. Yeah. And also think about the stage personas themselves. So... There's also a logical problem with his versions of stage personas. I mean, there are several, but the biggest ones. He, when he is creating his Moses stage persona, remember, this is the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God. Their mission is to suck people like a sponge out of other churches. And during this phase of his ministry, he is presenting himself as being commissioned by God to be given symbolically links to Moses. As Moses was given two signs, so will you be given two signs. He gets the number of signs wrong. There are three, he said two. But to those people for that stage persona, he was, quote, the Moses that led God's people out. He was staging an exodus from mainstream Christianity into his cult to build and grow his cult. 
once he did this, all of these people that are in this sect viewed him as this Moses character. Then he introduces his Elijah stage persona. And he's got a new commission as Elijah was um, behold as John the Baptist, who was, you know, and biblically the, the spirit of Elijah was on John the Baptist. As John the Baptist was sent, so were you sent, William Branham. So here's a second commission, which is also a logical problem, right? If God is commissioning you to do something and he gives you these signs, which are supposed to lead people to, you know, to prepare them for the coming of Christ or whatever. You don't need a second commission. All you need is the one, you know, the first one should be good enough, right? But those people would remember his Moses stage persona. So he has to transition slowly over time. And you'll find mixtures of these personas as they shift, they shift from Moses to Elijah. And then where it gets really problematic for me during the last years, during the last few years of his ministry, he starts bringing in the Son of Man stage persona. That's right. That's when he starts setting himself up as being God incarnate, being yes. the return of Jesus Christ. Yeah. He, he it's started very problematic. Setting, he started setting that up mid-60s, late 60s, and came in really strong towards the last two years of his ministry. And so maybe as we wrap up, um, I'll just hold up one last thing. Here is the man who is in the background <laughs> of the 1933 baptism. Here is the man who is sponsoring the 1933 baptism services. Here's the man who paid for the tent. Here's the man uh, who ordained William Branham, organized the tent meeting. Here's the man in the shadows that yes. no one ever told us about who was involved at this point in William Branham's ministry. Here's the man. In the Marvel Universe, here is the kingpin, Roy E. Davis, who is orchestrating everything. So, well, this was exciting. Uh, next week is even better, Charles. We're getting into some really deep um, message history, some fundamental elements of what yes. is called today the message. So stay tuned, everybody. The next episode, the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle. <laughs> <laughs> If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We have a great episode coming. 